personal question right now, and uh, I hope you're not offended by it, but um, how many of you this morning brushed your teeth? Um, I know, as you have donut in your mouth, you know, you're responding to that. How many of you actually brushed your teeth? Thank you for that hand. Okay, good. We're, we're, we're at least honest about that, but isn't one of the great aggravations in life the toothpaste tube? Now, I mean, just, just think about this. You often, maybe in a family, will hear cries coming from the bathroom. Someone might say something like this. Someone left the cap off the toothpaste. Does that ever happen in your household? Maybe. Or, or maybe it's, you know, it comes out a different, a different kind of direction. Someone's been squeezing the toothpaste from the middle we realize the level of severity of that sin actually is in our lives. But don't you hate it when the toothpaste tube is empty and you're going to brush your teeth and you reach for it and it's just this flat thing? And so what you do, because you're desperate, because you've you got to brush your teeth, for those one or two of you that did it this morning, you know what I'm talking about, right, is... You, you take that toothpaste tube and you, you, you roll it and you squeeze it. And you're just trying to get every residue of toothpaste out of that toothpaste tube. And finally, you get it to the end. And you're using every muscle in your hand to do that. You know what I'm talking about. You're squeezing down with your thumb. And finally, this thing pops out and you're able to brush your teeth. And it's, it's really a sense of accomplishment, isn't it? All right, it really is. And I mean, you, you wish that people were watching and they could celebrate and yell and scream and happiness for you, but that's the challenge of it. Um, or maybe you're one of those people that still washes your own car. You don't have to raise your hands for this one. Um, and you understand what it is after you've washed your car. You get this thing called a chamois out, right? And you wipe down the car with the chamois. And what you do with that chamois then is you wring out the water and then you wipe it down some more. And then when you're all done, you kind of stand off from the car and you start wringing that chamois to get all the water out. You know what I'm talking about? You're squeezing it, you're twisting it, you're spinning it, whatever you might do because you want to get every little bit of water out of that chamois because you're done. Well friends, there's a sense in which what we're doing today is this. We are squeezing the book of Jonah one more time to get out of that book more that God wants us to learn. It's not that we're looking for things that aren't there. We're looking for things that are there, but we're going to be looking at them through the lens of the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, and the passage today is Luke chapter 11. So as we put pressure on this book of Jonah, we have been going through it for the past, what, five weeks or so, um, today, we want to finish things up by just squeezing it one more time, but recognizing that Luke refers to it, just as we've read it here earlier, there's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. There's also a really short parallel passage in Mark, chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. And so each of those sections deals with this sign of Jonah, and so Jesus is speaking back to the events that took place here. So, verse 29 of Luke chapter 11, let's read it. When the crowds were increasing, he, he began to say, this generation 
is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, let me ask you a question. Jesus in his ministry, was he, was he doing miraculous things? What kind of miraculous things was he doing? He was healing people. He was doing what else? All right, he did raise people from the dead. What else? All right, change water into wine. He did perform miracles. The Gospel of John really emphasizes that. He was casting out demons. Um, there was just a lot of, lot of miraculous things that were happening. Matthew's account, though, what the, in particular, Pharisees were asking, not just the people, what the Pharisees were asking was for a sign from heaven. They wanted something really, really spectacular to prove that he is who he says he is. And so this asking for a sign is basically them saying, you know what, all these other things you're doing just are not good enough. I mean, yeah, it's just not good enough that you're healing someone who's lame or who's blind or that you're casting out a demon or that you're raising someone. Those aren't good enough. We need a sign. We need something better than that. Okay? That's the context. That's the attitude that is being portrayed as these people, as in particular the Pharisees, were coming to Jesus. So the question now for us as we begin is, what is this sign of Jonah? Now, one of the answers possibly is, it's Jonah himself. That Jonah is the sign. If you remember, Jonah went for three days and three nights, where? In the belly of a fish. And, you know, he may have been physically affected, and when he came into Nineveh, ah, look at this guy, you know, he's all bleached, and, you know, he's got pimples all over him, whatever it is. But the text doesn't give us specifics there. That's just us thinking about it. So it's possible that Jonah himself is this sign. It's also possible that it's Jonah's preaching. Because Jonah did go into Nineveh and he did preach, right? And the people ultimately responded to the message that Jonah gave by having this, this citywide repentance. So it's possible it's that. Um, it could also be his fish experience, which is found in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. In that parallel passage, here's what it says. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You say, aha. Well, if Matthew is saying that, then that has to be the sign of Jonah. Okay? I, I would agree. Um, but let's consider one more possibility, and that is the repentance. Is it the repentance of Nineveh that is really the sign of Jonah here that's being referenced to? Now, the only indication we have from the Gospels is specifically that it was Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. Okay, now I just want you to think with me. If Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and he just showed up in Nineveh, was that sufficient? No, because he had a message, right? So I do think specifically the sign of Jonah ultimately is him being in the fish, but that being in the fish is part of a greater context that is really being talked about ultimately. You can't have the, th the Jonah in the fish without him going to Nineveh, without him preaching, without him personally being an example. I think they're all part and parcel with it, 
But the nugget of truth that connects to Jesus, ultimately, is this three days and these three nights. Now, so as we go now back to the the book of Jonah, we're going to look back at Jonah and the story of Jonah through the lens of this gospel passage, but we're also going to bring up some very familiar lenses that will help us look through this book of Jonah. Um, And I think ultimately when when we're done, we will get back to this question about the sign of Jonah and the point of the text in Luke 11. And so we'll kind of be interacting back and forth to some degree as we go through. But I'd like, first of all, to say that the sign of Jonah needs to be seen, first of all, through the lens of God's holiness. And you say, well, why would you say that? Where is God's holiness in the context of Jonah? Well, go to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. What does God say about Nineveh? Their evil has come up before me. Remember, that is an expression, that is a statement that parallels what God was saying about a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Their wickedness has come up before me. Go back to Luke chapter 11 and verse 29. Well, I'm going to have it up here on the screen for you. It says, this generation is an evil generation. (laughs) In fact, in Matthew's account, he talks about that generation. Jesus is speaking to his generation as an evil and an adulterous generation. Now, do you see the parallels here? That God's holiness was an issue in the generation of Jonah. It was because God is holy that the evil of Nineveh was repulsive to him because he's God and he is holy. And in the same sense, God is repulsed at the evil of the generation in Christ's day. Okay? Now, so God is holy and he hates sin. Would you agree with that? But that's not a very popular subject today to talk about God's holiness and to talk about man's sin and to talk about um, his justice. But I I want us to think a little bit about the justice of God's holiness. Because God is holy, when sin comes before him, what does he have to do? He has to judge it. It's part of his very, very nature. He then exercised justice in the form of judgment on that sin. That ultimately is what he has to do. It is right for him to do that. It would be against his nature to not exercise justice against that sin. Now, we don't like to talk about God's justice, his judgment, or his holiness, unless unless it is used for our benefit. In other words, someone has offended us. Someone has hurt us. Someone has taken advantage of us, and we're quick to say, God, I want what? Justice. But when God comes to us, and he presents a case against us, we're offended that his justice is being talked about and his holiness is being talked about. But friends, God cannot tolerate sin. Now, the people of Jonah's generation were evil. 
the people of Christ's generation, they were evil and adulterous. The people of our day are evil and adulterous. Hold on a second. What does that mean? Are you telling me that my neighbor who has a wife and three kids and they've been married for, you know, for, for 20 years and they're good people, he cuts his grass and, you know, they don't throw things in our yard and, you know, they're, they're at home and they go on family vacations, they seem to be happy. Are you telling me that they're evil and adulterous? Well, let's think through this a little bit. It may not be a reflection of all of their actions, but it does describe what is truly going on in their heart. Now, see, man bristles at this. Man doesn't like being identified as evil and adulterous, but that is ultimately what their heart looks like. Listen to how God describes the heart of man, in particular, the unbeliever. I'm going to read three passages of Scripture here. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's Jeremiah 17, 9. Genesis 8, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Hmm, interesting. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is a picture of what man is like apart from God. Man's heart ultimately is selfish, self-serving, pursuing his own agenda. So in his heart, he is worshiping his own idols, which is an abomination against God. It is adultery to not worship God when you should be worshiping God. It is evil to pursue your own sinful desires and your own sinful pleasures. So it is true that your neighbor, your coworker, as kind and gentle, as nice as they are, if they do not know God, have a heart that can be described as being evil and adulterous. Okay? Now, I, I'm not saying that they're running all over the place, carousing and you know, beating people up and doing all those horrible things. No, no, I know they're not like that, I hope. But their heart... And the condition of their heart is depravity. That is how how we are described pre-Christ, without God. Now listen, this is important for us to recognize. This is what God was offended at. He was offended at the evil of that day, and so he was bringing a message of judgment. But notice something else, though. Not only the justice of God's holiness, but what I'm calling the patience of God's holiness. God ultimately is patient. He doesn't tolerate sin, but he is patient with it. There's a difference there. Because tolerance may mean I'm not going to deal with it. Patience means I'm not dealing with it right now. Ultimately, in the story of Jonah, later on, Nahum is preaching, and he's preaching to Jonah, or not to Jonah, but to Nineveh, that they are going to be destroyed, and they are. God's judgment ultimately comes down through the message and the preaching and teaching of Nahum. So God, in a sense, even with the repentance of, of Jonah, and, or sorry, repentance of, of Nineveh, um, exercises judgment on them a, you know, a couple of generations later. So judgment does ultimately come, but there's a patience there. We call that, two words that are used to describe God's patience with people, his long-suffering 
and his forbearance. His long-suffering and his forbearance. God's patience with people. Now, God doesn't have to wait to exercise his wrath on sinful man, does he? But the fact that sinful man is still breathing, the fact that sinful man is still alive, is a reflection of God's patience. Are we thankful for that? Are you thankful that as soon as you were determined that you were a sinful being, that God didn't just zap you right away? That he was patient, that he was working a plan, and through that plan he was drawing you to himself? See, that's all part of his patience with mankind. He has every right and would be completely just to bring immediate judgment on mankind, on Nineveh, on Israel, on Jonah, and on our generation. But God is still at work in us. We're still breathing because there's something greater going on. Which moves us then from God's holiness to what I'm calling God's sovereignty in all this. The sign of Jonah now is seen through the lens of God's sovereignty. So we're kind of working our way through the book here with this idea of of what Jesus is saying to his audience about the book of Jonah. It begins with the holiness of God, but it moves into the sovereignty of God Not only is God then holy, he's also sovereign. And what that means is that he has a plan and he has a purpose that was determined before the creation of the world. Now, I didn't come up with that. That's what God says himself. He already determines things. He already plans things before the creation of the world. He is sovereign. He is totally and completely in control. And all that has planned, get this, and purposed, will come true, even if it means he uses unusual means to accomplish his purposes. So in the book of Jonah, we see God's sovereignty in a number of different ways. You know this. You see God's sovereignty over nature, right? Over nature with the, uh, the wind is really what he is initially you know, sovereign over. It's the wind then that creates the storm that brews up. A little later in that passage in chapter 1, it does talk about his, his sovereignty. The idea is he is the one appointing the storm, an incredible tempest. Then, of course, you talk about nature, then chapter 4 also talks about the plant. Secondly, his sovereignty over objects. Okay, over objects. You remember back in chapter 1, How was it that Jonah was determined to be the problem? They cast lots. The pagans were casting lots. And God oversaw the casting of those lots to identify to those pagans that Jonah was the issue, that Jonah was the problem. That wasn't just some kind of like, oh, wow, how coincidental. That is God sovereignly working his plan through objects. All right, what else? His sovereignty over created beings. The fish. Was God sovereign over that? Absolutely. He appointed a fish, we're told, to swallow him. At the end of that passage, chapter 2, it says he appointed that fish to what? Vomit him up on shore. That's God in control of his created beings. And then chapter 4 tells us about a worm. Big fish, little worm. All right, I mean, there's some interesting th- parallels there. That God is in control of this incredibly huge creature. He's also incredibly in control 
of this tiny little worm. He is completely in control. He is sovereign over those created beings. And then ultimately, he is sovereign over man. And that's not maybe quite as clear. Because we see man and his passions and his, and his desires and his pursuits going against God. You say, well, if they're going against God, how can God be sovereign? Because we know that he is by virtue of where things end up. Okay? We, don't, we don't get into the, you know, the mind and the thinking of the fish. We don't get into the mind and the thinking of the worm. But we get into the mind and the thinking of man. But God is sovereign over man, even in his sinfulness, even in his wickedness, even in his adultery, even in his running away from his responsibilities before God, God is sovereign. Now, all this God is sovereign stuff is not simply a circus show to somehow impress us that God is flashy and skillful. That's not the point. These are all the means that God uses to accomplish his will. And God allows us to see all of those things in the story of Jonah, doesn't he? God um, uses uh, all these things to accomplish his will. That pagan man would ultimately worship him, that the believing man would obey him, that the evil and adulterous man would repent and believe in him. Now just think about your life. Think about all the things that have taken place in your life. And if you, were, if you were able to, and to be able to see in the spiritual realm, and able to see God and his sovereignty accomplishing all those little things in your life, you would be in awe. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And here's the important part. And what? In all your ways, what? Acknowledge him. Now, we can only acknowledge him where we definitely clearly see his hand at work. But get this, he is working behind the scenes in ways that we cannot comprehend. He is sovereignly accomplishing his purpose in all of our lives. I mean, that, just, that should floor us. And we should be in awe of who he is because of that. So as we flash forward to Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, we need to be reminded that all their conversations, all their confrontations are part of God's sovereign plan. It's all part of his unfolding of his purposes to bring glory to himself. And so as you look back at your life, who you have come in contact with, where you have lived, the struggles that you have experienced, the jobs that you've held and still do, or the jobs that you've lost, the times of celebration, the times of weeping, all of these things are means by which God is accomplishing his purposes in our lives. Because he's sovereign and he works his sovereign purpose and plan. So they're all players, actors, and, and signposts to the fact that God has been and is sovereign in your life. Now listen, on a personal level, I don't know why God would take a man born in Tel Aviv who moved to Germany, who moved to England, who moved to Michigan to meet someone in South Carolina who grew up in Oakland and now has brought us both back here to California. I, that's God doing all those things. You can just probably come up with the same thing in your situations, right? How would God orchestrate all these things to bring people together to bring glory to him and it clearly be his purposes because he's sovereign and he's working his plan. And see, his sovereignty and his holiness work hand in hand. And as we move further through this book, 
I want you now to see the sign of Jonah as seen through the lens of God's mercy. This book is full of God's mercy, is it not? God's mercy came in the form of a warning. Now just listen to that statement. God's mercy came in the form of a warning. Just imagine you're driving on one of the windy roads, you know, out by uh, Lake Chabot, back there, what it's called Redwood Road as it continues on, winding around through there. Are you not thankful for warning signs that say, hey, there's a curve coming up, slow down? You know, you can be driving along, it's like, why do they put these warning signs up there? Man, they just must hate me or something. Is that what's going on? No, they're there for your blessing. They're there to protect you. But you see, what happens is we have this idea that warnings are bad things. And what happens here is these warnings come in this book, and they are really acts of mercy from God. All right? Think about the mercy that God demonstrated to the sailors, the mighty storm um, that caused them to throw off their cargo and to eventually throw Jonah off the boat. Those are wonderful demonstrations of God's mercy through warning. God was warning them, there's a problem here, and they knew it. And so they started to do something about it. Ultimately, they found the issue was Jonah himself. And to Jonah, the mercy was the storm. It was the fish. I mean, he thought he was going to die, but God provides this fish that swallows him. He probably thought maybe that was the agent of his death. Finds out, no, I'm going to stay here for a bit. And, of course, it was a means for him to, to reconcile with God. The, the, the plant and the worm were a warning to Jonah that God was at work and that his mercy still, um, or is still, extended to him. To the Ninevites, God's mercy to the Ninevites, uh, this message of impending judgment preached by Jonah was and still is a warning as well as an act of mercy to them. It was a message of judgment, 40 days, I'm going to destroy you. But that message of 40 days was a message then of warning and mercy because now they had 40 days to reconcile. See, we, we, just, we struggle with the warnings. We struggle with the judgment. But understand this. It is part of God's message of mercy to us. And so hear this. I mean, from a pastoral perspective, if I am opening up a text of God's word and it seems heavy and it seems weighted and it seems like, man, Rod, you're just getting on our case. Understand that the word of God at times is going to come with a heavy hand of judgment for the purpose of mercy for you. If you listen and if you hear the heart of God being expressed through that judgment and warning, so that you will turn to him and reconcile with him. When Jonathan Edwards preached the message, sin is in the hands of an angry God, and he held out you know, the picture of you know, the spider over a fire, that wasn't just to excite people. It was a warning, a warning of impending judgment, which ultimately then caused people to reflect on their sinfulness and bow the knee before God. So it really was an act of mercy. So guys, be, be thankful if you are being confronted with the truth of God's word 
hard-pressed against your heart, revealing your sinfulness. That is God's mercy at work. And we see that through this book. So all three had to bow the knee to God. They did it with repentance. Now, the religious condition of Israel, the religious condition of Israel, as described by Jesus, was evil and adulterous. Yet a new messenger had come with a message of condemnation, which was actually an act of mercy. See, the same thing happening here. And yet as these, these, this band of religious brothers listened to the messenger, they resisted him, they plotted to kill him, ultimately putting him on a cross. But the message was a message of mercy to those stubborn religious people. Friend, let's listen to the picture here of what's going on with us. A holy God sees your condition, your sin and opposition to the things of God. He is sovereignly at work in your life using people, circumstances, coincidences, the word, successes and failures to remind you, to warn you of your doom. And all of this, his message of warning is out of a heart of love for you. Friends, please, please, please do not resist the message of judgment and warning that God gives. Just pleading with you. Listen to what he's saying. Abandon your hold on this life and throw yourself at the mercy feet of Jesus. Only he can save you. Only he can wipe away your sin. Only he can give you new life. Only he can love you with an everlasting love. So we've seen so far the sign of Jonah through the lens of his holiness, his sovereignty, his mercy, and now through the lens of God's grace. Through the lens of God's grace. I just think through this with me. If you go back now to Luke 11. Go back to Luke 11. Let's just work our way through this passage and you'll see the connection here. In the story of Jonah, we've seen God's holiness and God has to act based on his holiness. But in order for him to act, he uses his sovereign powers and purposes to accomplish his will, and when he brings that message of judgment, it really is a message of mercy. The same would be true for the people that Jesus is speaking to here. God is holy. He must judge sin. Not only that, God is sovereign. He accomplishes his purposes through a number of different means, but he is also bringing a message of mercy. And as Jesus speaks here, his grace is now extended to um, both um, these Pharisees and the people, and he uses two examples to prove that. And the first one, of course, is this example of Jonah and Nineveh. Okay, and um, so think about this, if you would, please, as we pick up at verse thirty. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. There's something that about Jesus that is identified with Jonah, and is the means by which this generation is going to have to listen to what he's saying in order to find satisfaction. Jesus then would be a similar sign to this generation. Ultimately, Matthew tells us it's that three-day experience um, in the belly of the fish that parallels the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, just a little side note here. When we come to prophecy, there's two different ways prophecy is used. Number one, specific words about what is going to happen in the future, right? 
um, you know, Jesus will be born of a virgin. He'll be born in Bethlehem. These are specific words that are prophetical, that have fulfillment. The second part, though, are things that we call types. They're pictures that kind of foreshadow what is going to happen in the future. And in the story of Jonah, we have one of those pictures that foreshadows something that is going to happen in the future with Jesus. And so Jesus then is attributing what took place with Jonah in the belly of the fish as being similar to what he was going to experience in his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? That's what ultimately he is referring to here. So verse 32 then, as we jump down a little bit in the passage, says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but the preaching of Jonah was also on the heels of this incredible, miraculous event of him being swallowed by this fish. And they will bear testimony at the judgment and will condemn those who are now condemning Jesus for his preaching and his teaching. Then we go down to the example of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Yeah, maybe initially you kind of scratch your head, what's going on here? What do we know about Solomon? He was considered to be the blank in the world, huh? The wisest man in the world. Where did his wisdom come from? He was just, you know, just this guy that came up with great ideas? No, his wisdom came from God in particular. He was rooted in God, and God was the one who was working in him in greatest, great capacity to express and demonstrate wisdom. And his, his reputation went far and wide, in particular, to a region um, called Seba, which is way, way down in Arabia, about 1,200 miles away. Now, for us, 1,200 miles is not too bad, you know, because you can hop on a plane and just kind of fly over there, and you get there. We're talking about desert. We're talking about a long journey. We're talking about a struggle. So this queen of, we call her Sheba, with her whole entourage, get this, with treasure load after treasure load, makes her way to Jerusalem for the purpose of sitting under the wisdom of Solomon. She goes through all the labor and all the hassle, and she demonstrates her love in anticipation for what she's going to be hearing and ultimately for what she does hear. And according to this passage, she's going to stand in the judgment, and she is going to do what? She is going to condemn the generation that Christ is speaking to for their rejection of who Jesus is. So what's going on here? Jesus is identifying her passion, her work, and her desire for the truth. And all the battles and all the things that she did to get to the place where she could hear from God. And what's happening with the Pharisees? They don't want the truth. They want their truth. They don't want the truth. And they are stubborn and they're rejecting. And Jesus ultimately is saying, listen, the men of Nineveh 
and the Queen of Sheba will stand in judgment and they will condemn you. And behold, something greater is here. Once again, Jesus is confronting the religious leaders. This is the parallel regarding their ability to see the truth in light of the Gentiles who not only see the truth but believe it. I mean, this is, you want to insult a Jew? Use two illustrations of Gentiles who are doing the right thing against the Jew. And we found that also in the passage, if you remember, we talked about it last week, I think it was, when Jesus was in the synagogue and he opened the word of God and he used two illustrations, one about Elijah and one about Elisha talking about the woman, the Sidonian woman. And then we also have um, Naaman, two Gentiles who God went and sustained and helped and provided for, but he didn't do it to the Jews. And so these people who thought Jesus was great and wonderful now wanted to kill him. So, what's going on here? Well, let's kind of drive this now to a close. The sign of Jonah that Jesus is attributing now, he's attributing to himself, is he not? He's attributing it to himself. He's saying what, what happened with Jonah to Nineveh, what happened with Queen of Sheba and Solomon is what, happening, what is happening now with me and with you. The question is, are you going to follow suit? Are you going to listen to the message of warning? Are you going to understand that, that I am a holy God, that I, the Son of God, am here with a message that you need to listen to? And I just kind of want to bring things home really from three different angles here as we come up with these final implications, okay? Number one, if you are someone who is struggling with your faith, struggling with the fact of your salvation or whether or not you really want to enter the family of God, I want you to hear this. A holy God has entered your world holding you accountable for your dead spiritual condition and he is ready to judge, but he has not judged yet. This holy God is working his amazing and incomprehensible sovereign plan to draw his children to himself. The message of the gospel is both a warning and it's also good news depending on how you respond to it. And by his grace and by his power, you can be forgiven for your sin in complete, and be in complete fellowship with him. You will join the men of Nineveh. You will join the queen of Sheba on that day of judgment, praising God for the provision of his son. I just plead with you to, to hear the message of the gospel through what Jesus is saying and connecting what he is doing as the son of God to what was revealed there in the story of Jonah, what was revealed in the life of the queen of Sheba and her relationship with Solomon. But here's the second thing. I want you to notice something. This kind of reflects what we've been doing. It just kind of struck me yesterday as I was going through it. And I don't know why I didn't see it before. And it's amazing how God works. Just look at the title of our series. It's what? Great Expectations. Now, it's Great Expectations, but the Great Expectation began with 
a great commission. Remember that? And I was just connecting all these things that are described in the book of Jonah that are described as great. It was a great commission. It was a great storm. It was a great fish. Um, it was a great city. I cheated a little bit and talked about this great pity, okay, um, that Jesus, or that, sorry, that God had on the city. Um, and then today we're looking at what I'm calling a great sign. But listen, all of these are signposts on the road to the great expectation who is, get this, the great Savior. Because he says, listen, there is something greater that is coming. So even the story of Jonah, although speaking to the Israelites and speaking to Jonah and accomplishing this incredible uh, this repentance of the Ninevites ultimately pushes ahead and points to a great Savior who is coming. He's our great Savior, and he stands today before you and says, listen to me, listen to the gospel, trust me, lean on me. Follow the example of the Ninevites. Follow the example of the Queen of Sheba. I am the great Savior. Just, just read that one more time as we look at it here. Verse, verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up with the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Would you say that that is Jesus declaring himself as God? Absolutely. Final thoughts. Just wrap it up with this. If he is the great Savior, chapter 2 and verse 9 of Jonah says that salvation belongs to the Lord. If he's the great Savior, he's also the Lord. Then I want us to finish up where we began today in chapter 3 of the book of Jonah. I think this is important for us to recognize right now. So go back to Jonah, if you would. Go back to chapter 3. Remember, this is the king speaking to his people. Um, Verse 6, we'll pick it up there. For the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And I just want to, I want to Just resound that who knows a number of times here as we bring things to a close. Tomorrow, many of you go back to work, and there's that coworker that's there in that office with you or wherever it is that you go to work, and you've been sharing the truth of the gospel with them. But listen, who knows what God is doing through you to speak into that person's life? And you may have gotten to the place where you say, you know what, there's no way. This person's so pagan. It's so far removed from the things of God. Who knows? You young people who go to school 
you know, throughout the week. Some of you in public schools, some of you in Christian schools, and in Christian schools where there are unbelievers. And they're hearing the gospel, and they're hearing your passion about the things of God as you once again open your mouth and you demonstrate your hunger and your desire to live for God. Who knows that through that, God may bring satisfaction to them through his gospel. Maybe that neighbor that you have that, you know, just is pagan. They're just living a pagan lifestyle. That friend that you have that's just, you know, it just doesn't want anything to do with God. Do not give up on them. If we walked into Nineveh without the commission and we looked at Nineveh, we would say, ain't no way. But the king's word is counsel to us. Who knows? Because our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is the one to whom salvation belongs. And he is the one ultimately that determines who he is drawing to himself. So friend, let the word out. Speak it freely. Be confident that God always accomplishes his purposes through his people. It's not for you to get a notch on your belt or to seek some accolade because someone came to know the Lord. It is you who, if you are a servant of God, to simply open your mouth and be used by him. And if someone comes to know him, you rejoice with the rest of God's family, with the heavenly host, at someone who is now part of this new family, who is a citizen of this new kingdom. God is the one who's in control. He is sovereign. He is holy. He must deal with sin, but thankfully he is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. And as he stood before those Pharisees, ultimately they would reject him. They would want to kill him and ultimately would put him on a cross. But even that was part of his sovereign plan. And that was an act of mercy. And that was an act to satisfy the demands of his holiness and justice for us. Lord, would you strengthen us now with your truth? Lord, you have revealed yourself through your word. You've strengthened us, Lord, with the, the story of Jonah in so many ways. And I ask, Lord, that we would see you as our great God and Savior afresh this morning would be in awe of you, that you are not just, in quotes, the Son of God, that you are the great Savior. You are the Holy One. You are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords. And we who call you Master and Savior praise you. Lord, help us to declare your glory. To trust, Lord, that you work through our meager efforts to accomplish your purposes. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is struggling with whether or not they know you as their personal Savior, Lord, I ask that you would give them a confidence and a clarity, and Lord, that they would, they would find someone that is mature in the faith that could help them really grab a hold of what's going on in their lives. We praise you. We are in awe of you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. In your precious holy name, amen.